Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.21, The Colonial Economy. Last time, we had spent our episode discussing the rise of the sciences and civic organizations within the colonies. This week, we are going to spend our episode looking at the growth of the colonial economy and the new population centers that would form between 1700 and 1760. We had touched on some of this topic back in episode 3.9. However, in that case, we had really only looked at the early years of the 18th century. Today, I want to move that part of our story forward. Now, before we do any of that for today, I want to take just a minute and give you a bit of a roadmap of where the rest of this season is heading. Today, we are going to wrap up our look at the development of the distinct culture that would emerge in the colonies during the 18th century. This is largely what we have been looking at for the last several weeks. Following today, we are going to shift our focus back to the conflicts that would dominate the middle part of the century. Next week, we are going to have an episode on the War of Jenkins' Ear, and then, following that, an episode on the War of Austrian Succession. We should be able to get through both topics relatively quickly. After that, we are going to dive into the last topic for this season, and it is a doozy. I am talking, of course, about the French and Indian War. This is going to be a far more substantial topic, one that we are going to be spending a very considerable amount of time covering. Following that, we are going to have our standard two-part season in review, as well as a last episode that will serve as something of a retrospective on the entire colonial era. The season will then wrap up with a colonial-themed question-and-answer episode. We have a while before I talk too much more about that. However, you can go ahead and start thinking up any questions that you might want me to answer. By the time that this season is complete, we are going to have spent over 100 episodes examining the North American British colonies. With all of that out of our way, we will be ready to move into Season 4, which is going to focus on the Imperial Crisis and the American Revolution. So we do have a lot of exciting things coming our way. However, for this week, let's go back and dive into the wild world of the colonial economy and trade. As a quick reminder of what we had talked about way back in episode 3.9, the colonial economy during the 18th century was certainly growing. While the records that do exist can be limited and reflect primarily imports and exports, evidence does exist to suggest that internally the demand for goods was also growing. This week, I plan to move from south to north, looking at how the colonial economy was changing in the years and decades before the Revolution. By the time of the Revolution, the economy of the South had undergone a massive change from where it had been at the turn of the 18th century. Back in episode 3.9, we had discussed those changes that took place following Bacon's Rebellion. Farming was moving in a more commercial direction. It, however, is important to consider exactly what moving in a more commercial direction actually meant. The 19th and 20th century are going to be defined by their rapid industrialization, which will lead to widespread changes being made to the farming industry. Innovations would help to make the practice of farming far more efficient. However, farming techniques themselves would change very little during the 18th century. Commercialization of farming really meant that rather than just producing a sufficient yield for an individual family to consume, export became the name of the game. Rather than innovative methods intended to make farming more efficient, 
the most common thing was for large plantation owners to acquire huge numbers of slaves to increase the output of their farms. One of the biggest problems in the South was the emergence of the cash crop. Nothing exemplifies this more than tobacco in the Chesapeake. Maryland, and especially Virginia, had long become economically dependent upon the tobacco trade. Assuming you have been following along with the podcast, this probably is not new information for you. We have been talking about the precarious nature of the Virginia economy for the last three seasons. William Berkeley had drained his first term as governor in the 1640s, attempted to diversify the economy of Virginia. Berkeley saw the extreme risk that came with an overdependence on a single crop. A poor harvest or price fluctuations stemming from global economics could prove to have a devastating effect on Virginia as a whole. If you'll recall, it was the Navigation Act's restrictions on the tobacco trade that would undermine the Virginia economy and create so much tension in the lead-up to Bacon's Rebellion. Even after Bacon's Rebellion, however, Virginia colonists would resort to burning their own crops of tobacco in order to destroy supply in the face of stagnant demand. Now, despite all of this, Virginia would largely resist diversification of its economy until the beginning of the 18th century. However, the reality always was that Virginia and indeed the South were going to need to diversify their economies in order to remain economically competitive. In Virginia, diversification would come about in two waves, one beginning around the turn of the 18th century and lasting until about 1720, with the second beginning right around 1740. Tobacco prices had bottomed out during the early part of the 18th century, after decades of decline. This forced colonists into other areas with the need to supplement their income. It is important here to realize that this was not meant to be a full-scale abandonment of tobacco, which was still considered the primary cash crop in Virginia, but was a means to supplement a market whose value had dipped to unsustainable levels for the colonists. The diversification would see farmers look into products such as livestock, various grains, and naval stores. The second wave of diversification began in the 1740s and was spurred not by the market hitting its bottom, which had occurred earlier during that first period of diversification. Instead, the second round of market diversification came as a result of an extremely volatile tobacco market. By the 1740s, prices could rise and fall by 50% in just a two-year period. This instability caused issues for the planters as they had little ability to project the value of their crops prior to export. The most significant effect of this is the emergence of wheat as a major part of the Chesapeake economy. Wheat was a logical thing to grow for the colonists. The harvest and growing season for wheat was opposite to that of tobacco. This means that the planters could integrate an additional source of income without needing to sacrifice valuable land to grow tobacco. By the time of the Revolution, wheat had become the third most valuable crop grown in the Chesapeake. As smaller planters owned fewer slaves and less material wealth, they found the transition to wheat as a complementary crop to be far more difficult than plantation owners. Global demand for wheat came from primarily two places, each being important to consider. The first place that the Chesapeake was exporting to was southern Europe. The second place was the middle and northern colonies. Internationally, the colonies had established trade with southern European countries, meaning that the colonies enjoyed an all-important economic link with Europe. 
The trade with the Middle and Northern colonies reinforces that there was a growing intercolonial market that was forming. The commercialization of the economy also led to a change in the social structure of Virginia. In 1730, the largest landowners got the assembly to pass the Warehouse Law. This law required that any tobacco being used to pay taxes or other debts must be submitted to a public warehouse, where it would be inspected and then stored. If the tobacco was high enough quality, it would be stored in that warehouse, and the person who had given it over was handed a receipt. These receipts were transferable and therefore could be used as something of a quasi-paper currency, which was backed by the tobacco sitting in that warehouse. This act has several major effects on life within the colony. Importantly, quality was now as important as pure weight. With the tobacco market becoming increasingly unstable during the 18th century, shifting their focus from weight to quality made sense and was a way to potentially help reduce oversupply. For the large plantation owners, this was not a big problem due to the sheer volume that they were producing. However, for the small planters, they still operated in a system where they depended on weight being king. With time, the overall effect of the warehouse law is that it created different levels of product. The smaller planters could not afford to part with any of their tobacco, and despite changing trends in the industry, they were stuck with their focus on weight. Plantations, which were using far more streamlined practices, could produce large enough quantities of high-quality tobacco that it became pretty well accepted that plantation-grown tobacco was superior to that grown by the smaller planters. This would, in turn, increase demand on plantation-grown product while reducing the demand for lower-quality plants from the smaller planters. This would help to create a clear class distinction between the large planters and the small planters. As time moves forward, this pushed more and more small planters out of business and would allow for the large plantation holders to gobble up ever-increasing amounts of land. Long term, this had the effect that plantations grew steadily larger as the owners saw massive increases in their wealth. For the small planters, their wealth would stay largely stagnant despite the otherwise growing economy. Socially, the effect of this is that you are going to end up with an extremely stratified social hierarchy forming in the Chesapeake. At the very top, you had the plantation owners. Not only were they the social leaders of the colony, but they would also become the political leaders. It is the plantation owners who had the power to determine the political narrative while holding control over most of the colony's resources. Slaves and overseers worked and managed their large plantations, with the actual owner often having more of an advisory role. Below the plantation owners, you had the large peasantry class. These were those who owned small holdings of land and largely continued to plant at a subsistence level, with a small amount of that product being commercially available for sale. Below them, you had the freeholders and the leaseholders. This group did not own any land, but leased and managed the land for the larger planters. This group was generally the lowest rung on the social hierarchy that still enjoyed their freedom. Below this, you had the sharecroppers, and then considerably further down, you had the slaves. It is this stratification of the social structure during the 18th century that would produce the rise in violence towards slaves, 
and the increasingly draconian slave codes we talked about back in episode 3.15. The colonial government would use slavery and racism as a method to bind the white peasantry and the rich plantation owners together, rather than risk an alliance between the slaves and the poor. This diversification was not limited to Virginia and Maryland, but was something that spread throughout the southern colonies. When the rice industry began to fall apart during the 1730s, South Carolina colonists were admittedly slow to react in a method that would encourage economic reform. Rice had become the bedrock crop of South Carolina, and was sold in both Europe and in the West Indies, where it was primarily used as food for slaves. However, even by the early 18th century, the rice trade was showing cracks. The trade had become unstable as prices continued to fall. The South Carolina planters, however, instead of trying to diversify their economy earlier, decided that the better idea was to attempt to outpace supply and demand. Instead of giving into the pressures of a declining market by diversifying the colony's economy, planters in South Carolina simply planted more rice despite falling demand. The idea was that they could simply produce more product to bridge the gap left by the falling prices. Now, of course, you can probably see where this is going. By increasing production of rice, it increased the supply in the face of stagnant demand. This means that prices would fall more, forcing planters to plant even more rice to keep the system functioning. Ultimately, this actually does work for a couple of decades. But it was obviously unsustainable, and by the 1730s, the rice industry was well on its way towards a total collapse that would accumulate during the 1740s. With the collapse of the rice industry in South Carolina, we see the colony shift from its almost sole dependence on rice to having a thriving indigo trade. Indigo was used for dyes and fabrics and became popular during the 18th century for European fashion. By the beginning of the American Revolution, indigo was worth one-third the total value of the rice crop. Like Virginia, South Carolina was spurred forward by the collapse of the rice industry. With rice being so central to the economy, with its decline came a colony-wide economic depression. During this period, the southern colonies would see their trade grow, not just internationally with Europe, but it would grow internally between the other colonies as well. This is an important factor moving forward for the colonies. It shows that the colonies had a growing dependence on each other. The growth of internal trade would prove to be a critical economic component that would ultimately allow the colonies to survive the obvious trade disruptions that would accompany the American Revolution. In either case, what would emerge from this was a Chesapeake that had managed to finally move past being solely reliant on a single crop though the transition itself was often painful. The diversification of the 1700s meant that by the time of the revolution, the southern colonies were far more economically stable than they had been just a century before. No longer were they tied to the whims of a single crop, but they had a far more diverse trade. This is so critical because the South was the economic engine of the North American British colonies. It isn't just that the South was producing more, hence profiting more, but it really was not particularly close. Neither the Middle Colonies nor New England could produce on the scale of the Southern Colonies, 
and were indeed only able to independently produce about half the amount of export that the South was able to. When we talk about the American Revolution next season, keep these economic disparities in mind. The relative economic power of the southern colonies is going to prove important when we consider the question of why it was so critical that the South get on board with action against the British, despite the fact that the imperial crisis would deal a heavy blow up in New England. This is not to say that there was no anger on behalf of the southern colonists for British action, but that the northern colonies needed the southern colonies. This is something that is going to come together far more in our next two seasons. However, it is something that I would suggest storing away for right now. While the South was the absolute engine of the colonial economy, there were still growing economies in both the Middle and New England colonies. The vast majority of the goods being grown in the Middle colonies were sent either to Southern Europe or to the West Indies. These crops were generally grains, corn, fruit, and animal products. The amount that was being sent to Southern Europe directly violated the Navigation Acts, which were revised in 1753. As we move towards the imperial crisis of the 1760s, British attempts to raise revenue are going to have the effects on the colony's ability to import certain goods. We are going to spend a whole lot of time on that next season. However, for now, just know that the colonies by this point are pretty willfully violating the Navigation Acts. Just as we saw in the South, there was a marked increase in the effort of the middle colonies to move towards commercialized farming following the 1680s. What you don't see in the colonies north of the Chesapeake is the large commercial plantations that you see down in the south. Much of the product that was being produced in the colonies north of the Chesapeake was being used primarily for subsistence. They would then sell off any excess that might exist into the commercial marketplace. Not that subsistence farming was not occurring in the south as well. It absolutely was. However, the size of the operations meant that a far greater percentage of the overall yield made it into the marketplace and was not being consumed by the family producing those goods. It is also interesting to note the differences in the labor market at large outside of the southern colonies. As we have discussed at length, slavery existed everywhere throughout the colonies prior to the American Revolution. Looking at the colonial slave population in 1760, for example, Massachusetts recorded right around 4,500 slaves. Delaware had 1,700, Pennsylvania had 4,500, and New York had right around 16,500. Compared to the southern colonies during that same period, Virginia had 140,000, Maryland 49,000, and South Carolina had 57,000. This difference in the number of enslaved people would have profound effects on the overall workforce and labor system that existed. As I mentioned earlier today, one reason you see a diversification of crops on large plantations is because the major plantation owners wanted to maximize potential profit by encouraging a year-around work cycle. For economic and personal safety reasons, they wanted to avoid having large numbers of slaves sitting idle in between planting seasons. Therefore, there was that additional economic pressure to push diversification during the months where tobacco was not being planted. In the Middle and Northern colonies, while slaves existed, they did not form the backbone of the labor system as they did in the South. As we had discussed back in our episodes on slavery, 
you had very few colonists in the northern colonies that owned large numbers of slaves, largely because doing so simply was not practical. Rather than a large base of slaves in the middle and northern colonies, you see those colonies turn increasingly heavily to short-term labor and the continued use of indentured servants. As to the latter, indentured servants remained more common in the northern colonies, whereas they had largely fallen out of favor in the southern colonies as slavery took hold. This worked well as the first half of the 18th century would see a rise of both German and Scottish immigrants coming to the colonies. These immigrants would often use indentured servitude to cover the cost for their journey across the Atlantic. For the short-term laborers, they would generally be hired on for a season and were free to give help throughout the year, depending on what was being grown. As with the other colonies, farming was an important revenue source in New England. However, New England farming brought with it different considerations from the other colonies. One of the biggest problems in New England, and especially in Massachusetts, is that the ground was not exactly wonderful farmland. The northern latitudes of New England meant that it had a substantially shorter growing season than you would have found down in the Chesapeake, or even in the middle colonies. This short growing season was not conducive to having large slave workforces. Slaves in New England were expensive to purchase, and the need to feed and clothe them often meant that they made little financial sense. The slaves that lived within New England often worked as household servants, though to be sure many of them still did work on farms. The labor force in New England, therefore, was generally made up of short-term laborers, indentured servants, and often the children of the family. It is worth noting that among the short-term laborers in New England, both men and women found employment, though women were almost always paid less than men. Most of the farm product produced in New England went directly to the subsistence of the individual families, with a small amount of excess being sold into commercial marketplaces. This was not radically different from the setup that we had seen nearly a century earlier in New England. Recall that the colonies in the region had long relied upon small farms for subsistence with the rest being sold primarily as food for slaves in the West Indies. We had talked about that way back towards the end of our first season. The single largest market in New England came not from the products that they grew, but rather from the lucrative fisheries off the coast. The fisheries began near New England and extended north into the coast of Newfoundland. These had long been critical economic engines for the entire region. Fishing had been a core part of the economy of New England since nearly the beginning and had continued to progressively expand through the 18th century. Besides fishing for the sake of capturing food, whaling also became a thriving industry. Whales had a variety of uses, including whale oil, which was used to fuel lamps throughout the colony and back in Europe. In the years leading up to the Revolution, a full one-third of the exports from New England were from fish, and that is not counting the additional revenue source from whaling. The fishing industry stood as the backbone of the New England economy, and would provide employment for large numbers of colonists in the region. Beyond just the fishermen alone, the fish being brought back into the colony needed to be processed before they could be sold. This would help employ others both men and women, back inside the colony itself. 
if you are listening to this podcast and attended high school in the United States, you probably learned about the idea of salutary neglect. The term salutary neglect was coined by Prime Minister Robert Walpole, beginning in 1715 and lasting until roughly the outbreak of the Seven Years' War in 1756. It is this policy that was in place and was arguably responsible for the period of growth that we have been discussing over the last several episodes. The general idea behind the program was that to better increase revenue, it made sense to allow the colonial empire to largely manage itself. The plan was that by cutting down administration costs, the colonies would be cheaper to operate and thus would increase profit. It was further assumed, and assumed correctly, that by ruling with a lighter touch, the colonial economies would grow substantially. Now, to be clear, everybody knew that this meant that some revenue would be lost to illegal trade. However, the lower administration costs, combined with the overall increased economic prosperity of the colonies as a whole, would more than make up for the difference. We have mentioned the Molasses Act a few times now, and the fact that it never really had much in the way of any actual bite to it. This is largely because of this concept of salutary neglect. Sure, the colonists were conducting trade that they probably should not have been. However, the economy of the colonies was growing as a result, which was good for the empire. Plus, it meant that the crown could spend less money running the colonies and enforcing all of those unpopular regulations. Earlier today, we talked about the colonies and their flaunting of the Navigation Acts to trade with Southern Europe. This was, again, a direct result of this economic policy. It is with no question that the expansion of the colonial economy during the years between Queen Anne's War and the French and Indian War had been nothing short of spectacular. Much of that growth was made possible because of the minimal amount of interference from the crown. Politically, the lack of involvement from London allowed colonial assemblies to grow significantly in their own power. Internal affairs became just that. Britain had little to say over the daily administration of the individual colonies, power which transferred into the hands of the colonial assemblies. This increase of power extended to taxation, where suddenly the colonial assemblies found themselves with far more ability to levy internal taxes. In this way, Britain got exactly what they wanted. The colonial economy grew, and indeed, Britain became that much more powerful. One goal of Walpole was that with the growth of the colonial economies, the colonists would import more and more goods from England. This is exactly what happened. Both in terms of luxury items and manufactured goods, the increase in colonial wealth absolutely meant increased demand from the colonists for English luxury goods. This, in turn, improved the British economy as more and more colonial money poured back across the Atlantic towards Great Britain. The problem, however, is that in order to grow the economy, Britain had ceded some of their power over to the colonists. That was all fine and good prior to 1756 and the French and Indian War. The colonies had largely been at peace, and the two conflicts that did occur, conflicts that we are going to talk about in the next two episodes, were relatively minor in nature at least economically. With the French and Indian War, however, the British faced a much more substantial conflict. 
The French and Indian War cost the British huge amounts of money, money that they were going to desperately need to recoup. Recovery of those funds was going to require an end to salutary neglect and more direct control over colonial taxation than had been the norm. Spoiler alert, the colonial response to this increase of royal authority is going to be the subject of basically the entirety of our next season. The period in between Queen Anne's War and the French and Indian War marks a time of critical growth for the colonies. Over the course of our last several episodes, we have seen a distinct culture appear throughout the colonies. From the rise of the colonial press, a dramatic increase in the population and the economic growth that we discussed this week, the colonies were in a substantially improved position from where they had been at the start of the century. This period would also define the future nation in other ways. It was during the first half of the 18th century that slavery would really begin to take a hold and economically and politically transform the southern colonies. While there were physically fewer slaves north of the Chesapeake, all the colonial economies were at least to some degree tied into the practice. It was in the South, however, where their impact would be most felt. Economically, the colonies would grow at a fantastic rate during the first half of the 18th century. With that growth being driven by the hands-off policy of salutary neglect, colonial assemblies would gain new powers over their colonies, powers that they were not going to happily give up in the future when British prerogative changed. However, those questions and issues admittedly remain in our future. Despite all of the growth and expansion of the intercolonial trade, the colonies were still separate and distinct from each other. Prior to the French and Indian War, there is nothing that could have been remotely confused as being a sense of national identity that related to the colonies at large. Colonists were residents of their colonies. You had Virginians, Pennsylvanians, and New Yorkers. Everybody was a British subject. However, in 1750, nobody looked at the collection of colonies and thought of them as being something greater. There was minimal colonial coordination at this junction, something that the British had absolutely no interest in changing. Next time, we are going to discuss the end of this long period of peace in the colonies. Following the end of Queen Anne's War, there had been a period of nearly 30 years of peace within the colonies. However, that peace would end in the early 1740s, when some guy named Jenkins went and got his ear cut off. With that, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we discuss the War of Jenkins' Ear. <laughs> <laughs>